The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The first of this year's. Um, seminars in the center in the trinity center for early modern history seminar series normally we would be in the lawn room hub today we are coming to you via the lawn room hub and the magic of zoom and kicking off our new terms seminars where and the idea with the seminar series for this term is that we're going to try and focus on partly highlighting some of the really exciting research that's going on within the sort of center here, within people connected to Trinity. And so many of our seminars are going to connect in with ongoing work here at Trinity with some outside speakers as well, as you would see from the wider program. And to kick that off, today's seminar is going to focus on doing early modern history today and the sort of things that people are up to. And we have a panel of three who are going to introduce us to, I suppose, the state of early modern history and things that they are personally quite engaged with, what they see as the big questions. Um, so I'm going to introduce um, our three speakers and then allow them to get on with things in order. So um, I suppose I probably should introduce myself. I'm Dr. Patrick Walsh. I'm the convener of the seminar here at Trinity History Department. And my three colleagues who will be speaking today are Professor Robert Armstrong, an expert on early modern Britain and Ireland, known for his book Protestant War on the 1640s, and most recently been working on Irish Presbyterians and the history of Irish Presbyterianism in the long 17th century. Um, and he's going to be talking, I suspect, with some focus on that and histories of religion. We also have continuing, um, and there's a religious theme cutting across our three panelists today, which is I think very deliberate. So we have, we also have Dr. Gray Murdoch, um, who is an expert really on the Reformation and has worked both on France and Transylvania. And his most recent work has been on the Reformation in rural France. So Graham will be joining us very shortly. Um, We'll have Robert first, then I think Graham. And then our third speaker is Dr. Simon Lewis, who has been an IRC postdoc here in the department and has, I think, been extended due to the broader world circumstances. And Simon has been working on Methodism um, in Ireland in the long 18th century and uncovering some really interesting material. So I suspect he will reflect on that in his presentation. So I'm going to hand over without further ado to to Robert Armstrong. Hello everyone, hi, I hope you can hear me. Um, if not, please find some way to signal that you can and, and, and we'll see what we can do about it. Um, very pleased to be with you uh, in these rather unusual circumstances. Um, and I think I'm going to, to use my privilege of going first uh, to suggest two rather than one, two topics rather than one uh, to talk about. And what I want to do is really just use my, my slot, uh, not so much to talk in detail about the two topics I have in mind, though I'm very happy, obviously, to take any questions later on on the details. 
but rather to use those two topics to, to say something about ways of approaching early modern history. And I suppose I'm particularly thinking of, of, of anyone out there who's beginning to study this at a more advanced level um, and getting to grips with, with, with research topics of your own. So I'm more focused, I suppose, today in, in, in my little slot on problems, the kind of problems uh, that I find, or the challenges are maybe a better word that I find in some of the uh, research I've attempted to do. Um, I would say after having studied early modern history for uh, longer than I care to remember, that the process certainly doesn't get any easier. If anything, it gets more difficult, but this is a good thing. Um, it is good constantly to encounter the kinds of challenges or questions or difficulties that keep a subject alive and keep us thinking and keep us interested. So I said I'm going to have a go at two, two topics, um, but don't worry, I'll keep them both uh, brief. The second one is the one Patrick alluded to, uh, Presbyterianism in Ireland, which is something I've been interested in uh, for a long time now and, and, and I've sort of come back to uh, on occasion over the last number of years. But I want to speak very briefly, firstly, about something else uh, that's caught my interest perhaps more recently, which is the subject of, of royalism as a, as a political philosophy, um, as a political commitment, particularly in the middle decades of the 17th century and across the different Stuart kingdoms, Ireland, Scotland um, and England. And I suppose what, what interests me about this or what I find intellectually challenging uh, could come down to two big issues. On the one hand, this is a topic that I think challenges national narratives. Um, national narratives can be fruitful and helpful and good ways of organizing um, our thinking and, and, and also useful ways of organizing our research. But national narratives can only take us so far. Um, and royalism, I find, is, is a victim of national narratives. If you look at support for monarchy during the civil conflicts of the 1640s, uh, in Scotland or in Ireland, it's very much a marginal phenomenon in the historiography. By contrast, if you look at England, it's very much central, but perceived of as part of a very English dichotomy. Royalists on the one hand, supporters of parliament on the other. And that's a sort of a recurrent feature through English history for centuries to come. It's that same dichotomy that we see between Whigs and Tories and liberals and conservatives and Puritans and Anglicans and so on. And I think the challenge of studying something like royalism is lifting ourselves above those national narratives, trying to see what is in common and what's different between the stories and the events and the thinking that's going on in England and that which is going on in Ireland um, or indeed in Scotland. So it's a topic that challenges us um, or forces us to think around or outside or through national narratives. And I think that's a way of uh, illuminating a topic Approaching something like royalism is approaching something lots of people have studied before, but if we can ask different questions, can we see things differently if the sets of lenses that we're using uh, uh, focuses that subject or that topic or that issue in a different way? And I think a transnational, to use a, a kind of buzzword at the moment, a transnational approach can help us do that, even within a shared monarchy like that of the Stuarts. The second thing I think a topic like this can do for us is to challenge us to break down the sub-disciplines that we can get ourselves stuck in. And in this case, I'm thinking, I suppose, about the gap between uh, political history and history of ideas. Um, I suspect 
um, I'm making a massive generalization here, I suspect all historians and possibly all students of the humanities um, are engaged with some sort of philosophical question, even if we're not always aware of what it is. Um, and as far as I'm aware, I think the philosophical question that's always bothered me is how you find the relationship between actions and ideas. How far are we the prisoners of the ideas that we have? How far are we motivated by that we have? How far do we use ideas to justify actions we've already decided upon? And I certainly don't spend my days thinking about the philosophical question, but in a sense, it, it can haunt one's research. And in a topic like this, I think brings to the fore, how do we relate events history um, with ideas history? How do we approach a thing like a political commitment, like royalism, um, in such a way that makes, takes quite seriously the concrete events, the political history, and at the same time takes seriously the tendencies in thought. Um, political history can sometimes seem a, a more straightforward kind of history than some others, but one thing that it always demands is paying close attention to time, to chronology, to getting your dates right. When is the moment that a decision is taken as far as we can pin it down? What's the information available to people when they make those very precise decisions? Ideas history, on the other hand, makes us step back, uh, look not just at the big books of theology or political thought or whatever it might be, but how ideas are transmitted and absorbed in the everyday processes of decision-making. So for me, one of the challenges of a bit of research like this is to try and find a way to make these two ways of doing history come together. And of course, there are many other topics where, where that could be an issue. This, as I say, is just one that happens to interest me. And I think that uh, boundary line between uh, the history of action and the history of ideas uh, can often be explored around uh, concepts that don't necessarily fit entirely on one or the other. I mean, I'm sounding a little general here, but let me give you a couple of examples. Um, the idea of, of pardon is something that is, is very much on the, the politics side of the divide. Uh, one of the things that everyone agrees kings can do or queens can do in the early modern period is to pardon individuals or pardon communities. So it's, it's, it's an, an action it's a way of reconciling, uh, of making peace, of restarting or renewing uh, a political order. But it's also very much a conceptual term. The way pardon is understood or, or believed in fits very well with contemporary ideas in religion. It fits with a whole constitutional approach uh, to the role of royal prerogative as against the rule of law. So a topic like this allows us to explore these ideas in action. What do they mean as concepts? But what also do they mean in making politics happen? The idea of loyalty and service could be another one. Um, can that transcend uh, uh, specific national circumstances? Can one give one service to a, to a ruler? Can they demand our service regardless of our national or religious or confessional background? So here's a topic that for me, I find interesting because it requires us the boundary lines between national histories, but also between different ways of doing history. I want to very quickly look at the second topic because in a way that takes us in a different direction. Royalism is one of those topics that, that lots of people have, have had something interesting to say about. Lots of different approaches have been used. 
here's a question of maybe revisiting sources or revisiting topics in a way that's different or that rephrases our questions. Presbyterianism in Ireland um, is not something lots of people have asked about or explored um, or written about in great detail. Um, and I think sometimes of the history of Presbyterianism in Ireland, or indeed about religious descent, particularly Protestant descent in Ireland, as a kind of black hole um, in Irish history. But black holes um, have their own gravitational force or, or they make an impact, even if we're not actually looking at them. Um, they impact those things around them. Irish or, or Presbyterianism in Ireland is one of those histories that, that really has had a dominant narrative. Um, to some extent shaped at the time in the 17th century itself, more fully explored in the 19th century. Here is a received history, but it's also very much an internal history. It has invariably been history written by Presbyterians and usually for other Presbyterians. And the black hole dimension um, that I alluded to is the sense that there, there is a gap in the wider history of Ireland because this topic hasn't been integrated. It hasn't been drawn into a broader narrative, either a broader narrative of Irish history or a broader narrative of the development of that particular form of religion um, internationally and particularly in relationship uh, to the other Stuart kingdoms, Scotland um, and England. I often think that uh, historians of Ireland really don't spend a lot of time thinking about uh, religion. They tend to spend a lot of time thinking about religion uh, as a way of understanding other things. Uh, religion as a way of understanding politics, religion as a kind of a label for understanding uh, national or social or economic divisions or tendencies. Uh, and I think it's important that we move away from what we might call political religious history to look at social religious history or even at religious religious history to take seriously um, religious ideas in and of themselves. And in this case, the religious ideas uh, of the Presbyterian community. What I think is important or interesting to think about uh, in terms of Presbyterians in Ireland is that this is a community or perhaps a, a sequence of communities or a series of, uh, uh, of communities. Um, what we're talking about is, 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 is a body big enough to encompass not just the, uh, the genuinely devout um, or even the, what we might call the professionally devout, devout, the clergy and the elders, the people who leave records, but also uh, the occasionally participatory, those on the fringes or the edges, those who are drawn in uh, to a sense of community, perhaps through family or upbringing rather than through a deep sense of religious commitment. You've got a range of social types or a range of, uh, of, of, of individual, I say, participation or commitment. But how do the shared ideas begin to affect all those categories of people in different ways? And again, by ideas, we need to think about uh, the specific setting uh, of Presbyterianism in Ireland. This is not a community that generates much in the way of theological originality. This is not a community uh, that generates large scale uh, theological reassessment or writing. Um, this is not a community that even produces much in the way of print before the 1690s. But that doesn't mean that ideas don't matter. Instead, what, what I think is interesting here is to begin to explore 
um, how ideas work in a practical sense. What does it mean to believe uh, a particular theology or to live out a particular theology, whatever your degree of commitment? How does that shape our understanding of the world? And can we detect that, not just in things like sermons, but in letters, uh, correspondence, petitions, all the kinds of small scale documents uh, that, that get generated. I think my time is more or less up. Um, I had intended to say a little bit about the problems of sources that we use when studying a history, like the history of Presbyterians in Ireland. But I'll just leave you with one last thought, that a topic like this, I think is best approached by trying to make it connect with wider issues. We can often get so uh, sunk in our own particular groove in history that a topic like this can seem self-contained. And the way this history has been written has indeed been self-contained. So one of the challenges is to connect it, to connect it to the wider history of Ireland, but also to connect it to the wider history of religion as it's being practiced uh, uh, towards other European societies. And yet at the same time, recognize what's distinctive about it. Uh, that it's not a disconnected body of ideas. These are people living in real circumstances with material questions, practical questions, pressing down upon them that we need to try and exp explore or understand if we're beginning to see the role uh, of faith or of community in everyday life. I think I've gone over time, so my apologies, um, but maybe I'll hand back to Patrick. Thanks, Robert. Um, and of course, we have the odd situation where we cannot hear the no doubt usual applause here. Just to, we have we now we now have 32 people attending this seminar. So there is an audience, even if the speakers can't see it. I think that's probably worth stressing. Just as also to stress to that audience that you can submit questions via the Q&A tab on your Zoom screen, which will then come to you afterwards. So put your questions in Q&A rather than the chat function. And we'll be able to, our panelists will address those afterwards. I'm now going to hand over to our second speaker, which is Dr. Graeme Murdoch. And um, so over to you, Graeme, to follow Robert. Patrick, thank you. And could you give me an encouraging wave that you can hear me okay? Thanks, Kylie. So you would almost think that we planned this, but I'm just going to pick up a little bit where, where Robert has left off. Um, and my way of approaching this really was to sort of think through two wee articles that I've been working on recently and just try to highlight, I suppose, the wider context or the problem within which I would try to um, situate those. And I suppose that central issue for me is the social history, really, of the kind of reception of ideological cultural change in systems of belief, in styles of piety and standards of behavior in early modern communities. And what I think I've just described there is the history of the Reformation understood to mean religious change in its Catholic, Lutheran, Calvinist and other uh, guises. And I suppose what interests me at the minute through these two little uh, pieces is trying to tackle how that or what place those sorts of ideas tend to leave the poor and people who live in, in the countryside. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why uh, the poor, the illiterate and rural folk tend to be at the margins of narratives about the Reformation. And the not least of which is the views of the original reformers who tended, if not to be highly averse to actually visiting or living in the countryside, certainly much preferred uh, remaining inside this, the walls of uh, well-developed urban uh, communities. But more broadly, there has been, I suppose, a long historiographical heritage 
to this view that in different sorts of forms and combinations connects the religious changes of the early modern period to wider ideas about varieties of modernization theses, and most of those tend to leave rural folk in the slow lane of historical uh, development, and those are the folk that I've been trying to think about. The first article is on um, uh, effectively on baptism and marriage records in the Genevan Republic. About a quarter of the Genevan Republic lived in the countryside. And what I have been able to show is that in the 16th century, rural Genevan women were far more likely than their urban Genevan uh, counterparts to have pregnancies outside marriage. Now, what I think I do with that piece of information is another problem, uh, but effectively that was the, I suppose, the piece of social history of looking at those records. I generated that and then worried about what on earth that would be taken to mean. And the second article is about Bible reading, and that's in the Transylvanian Principality. But if I put before you two stock images that represent the problem that was worrying me, it would be on the one hand, a kind of image of the pregnant unmarried daughter of a Calvinist tenant farmer sitting in the back row of a church on a Sunday morning in the Republic of Geneva, and what she thought of herself, what her neighbors thought of her, and what I, as a historian, am supposed to do as I engage with her sense of her identity and her choices. And the second image is that of an elderly Calvinist woman sitting in the back row in a pew in a village in the Transylvanian Principality who can neither read nor write and is to engage with the abstract and abstruse theological principles associated with the Reformed Church of which she is a member. What does she make of this religion? How does she relate to this religion? What if in any meaningful way should I as a historian label her as a Calvinist, good, bad, or indifferent if such a thing uh, is possible? So in other words, at the heart of this inquiry is an attempt to find out as much as possible about early modern people who live outside towns, who live in the countryside, about the realm of their religious life and about the choices, about the choices that they make across the periods of their lives insofar as social agency was something that belonged to them. And my point, well, I'll probably dwell more on the second piece about Transylvania because I need very little excuse to talk about Transylvania at the best of times. And that in effect is the quandary that in the Transylvanian Principality, by the mid-1560s, a huge cohort of the population had converted to Calvinism. Calvinism, a religion that prized the authority of the sacred text of the Bible at the heart of its ideology, but there was no translated version of that Bible available either to ministers or to the community for about another 30 years. In other words, we have a bibliocentric form of Christian religion firmly embedded in society without the Bible actually being available to them to read and to use. Now that interests me in many different ways. It is particularly interests me because even if there had been a copy of the Bible available to read, most of the people who were Calvinists in that state could not have read it because they could not read. And so my, my concern is really to try to recover what the people of that generation thought they were doing and how those who were literate related to this religious culture. And the essential point of departure is one line of a law of the Transylvanian Principality, which was passed in 1568, which was the legal basis for the Reformed Church in that state. 
And that law said that ministers should everywhere preach and proclaim the gospel according to their understanding of it, because, and if their community is willing to accept this, good. And then they summarize at the end the basis of this. Why? Why? Because faith is a gift from God, which comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So in other words, what that law says is that to be a legal religion in the Transylvanian state, you have to have clergy who preach and proclaim the Bible because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now, you will have noticed, as I noticed, that they don't say reading. They say hearing. What are they up to? Is this a church's attempt to be sociologically relevant to the 1560s in declaring this in cognizance that most of their communities could not read? Well, of course it isn't. It's the assertion of a profound biblical principle which prizes hearing and communal hearing of the word as the most important truth engine that the Bible can deliver of itself and of true religion to those who hear it. And so they are asserting a central biblical principle by, the, uh, by isolating the importance of reading in terms of transforming faith. And the reason I know that is that the law itself quotes the Bible. And the passage that I've just described is from the letter which Paul wrote, which was to be read out aloud to the church in Rome, which says indeed that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And Paul insists on this in many of his other letters about how hearing the Bible effectually worketh. If I use a King James variant of one of the passages, effectually worketh in those that hear it. It's a principle that is across the Bible from Moses to the end. Hearing the words is not like any other sort of hearing of words. And it is a hearing which leads to the effective worker, the working out of truth in those that hear it. So the point being that a clearly articulated biblical principle is that hearing something read aloud to you is not second best. It's not some sort of marginal experience of a religious culture where the best way to do it was to read it silently to yourself in a study, and that was the prime means. And if people weren't quite up for that, then as a second best, yes, they could listen along as the Bible was read aloud, either in a home or as in church. No, the Bible says the opposite. It says that communal hearing is, in fact, the prime means by which truth is delivered to the heart in an effective way. So the fact from the church's point of view in the era of Reformation that they could not deliver Bibles into the hands of all of their adherents wasn't actually a problem. The, the fact that people couldn't read the Bible wasn't actually a problem. What was ne necessary is that the Bible was given voice, and it was given a voice that was comprehensible to those who would hear it. And that is precisely what they went about doing. And they relied on some early versions of the New Testament available to them, and they relied on manuscript copies of key passages, passages which no doubt had previously, in previous generations, appeared in images on the walls of the churches, but now had disappeared under whitewash. And so they relied on this vernacular voice, giving the effectual power uh, to the text. And so this is a, a this uh, sort of slightly, as it were, playful attempt is to puncture some holes in all sorts of expensive research grant driven projects where people count the number of books available in society and they count the number of people who can read and then they try to work out how cultural change might have worked from centers to localities and from areas where print heavily saturated communities to those that were marginal to this whole project of profound cultural change that is early modern world. And I want to come along with my little example from the very margins of Europe and say, 
nonsense. Nonsense. You have misunderstood entirely how early modern people understood how experience of ideas happened. And the fact that it happened by listening was no manner of means second best to those who could read. And that woman who sat in the back pew listening along with her wealthy fellow members of her community, she could not read. She is not marginal to that religious culture. She is the very signal of what that religious culture means. It means a community that listens together. So with that, I will pass on the baton, I think. Patrick, if that's okay. Now, so we shall now listen together, I think is the only appropriate thing to Dr. Simon Lewis, who is going to introduce us to what he has been thinking about. Hopefully you can draw connections as well, Simon. Thank you, Patrick. I have a very hard act to follow in those two excellent uh, discussions by Robert and Graham. The topic I'm going to be talking about isn't so much something that I've done tons of work on. Sorry, can everybody hear me, first of all? Yes, excellent. Yes, it's, it's more something that I'm interested in and would be keen to know more about. But I think it's something that will resonate with most, if not all, of the people in this virtual room. And that is the question of how was history written during the early modern period? More specifically, to what extent did historical writing become less polemical and less partisan as this period went on? In 1962, F. Smith Fusner claimed that during the late 16th and early 17th centuries, England witnessed a, quote, historiographical revolution in which historical writing became less providential and more, quote, scientific. Gone, apparently, were the gloomy days of the medieval period when history was written by chroniclers who were happy to present what was generally accepted about the past. Instead, Tudor historians apparently followed the example of Italian humanists by seeking human rather than providential explanations for events. And Fussner also claims that it was during the 16th century that English historians first became conscious of the importance of impartiality. In other words, the need for historians to critically examine their sources and to seek out new sources. In a 1971 article, Joseph Preston offered a more cautious assessment of historical writing during the 16th and 17th centuries. He didn't go so far as to say that this period witnessed a historiographical revolution. Nevertheless, Preston did describe the 17th century as a period of, quote, growing self-consciousness in which historians sought increasingly to avoid allegations of bias. And one of Preston's major case studies to support this point is Gilbert Burnett's History of the Reformation, which initially appeared as two volumes between 1679 and 1681. The third and final volume didn't appear until 1715, shortly after Burnett's death. So who was Gilbert Burnett? Well, Burnett was an Anglican clergyman who served as Bishop of Salisbury between 1689 and his death in 1715. And Burnett claimed that his history of the Reformation was the first non-partisan treatment of this topic. In the introduction to the second volume, Burnett argued that the duty of a historian 
was to write as one that is of neither party. He claimed to have adhered to this duty as carefully as possible by consulting original sources rather than earlier histories of the Reformation. Yet Burnett failed to realize that bias could also be shown through his selection of primary sources. In fact, Burnett's history was a decidedly partisan work, reminiscent in many ways of John Fox's ultra-Protestant Book of Martyrs, which had appeared in 1563. Indeed, Burnett followed in the footsteps of Fox by advancing a gloomy picture of a corrupt medieval English church. The only glimmers of godliness between the first and 16th centuries came in the form of so-called proto-reformers, such as John Wycliffe, whom Fox famously described as a morning star of the Reformation. Burnett's history of the Reformation was not welcomed by all. In fact, it was attacked by neo-Laudian historians, whom we might describe today as high churchmen. And these neo-Laudians were far less pessimistic about the medieval church. For instance, they didn't believe that there was anything wrong with monasticism. And also, unlike Fox and Burnett, neo-Laudians were far less gushing when it came to Wycliffe and the so-called proto-reformers whom they viewed as anti-clerical and insubordinate. So if Burnett's history of the Reformation shows us anything, it is that by the end of the 17th century, polemical history, especially polemical ecclesiastical history, was by no means dead and buried. And when we come on to the 18th century, which is my period, and as you'll know, the 18th century is often characterized as a period of enlightenment and modernity. So what impact is this supposed to have had on historical writing during this period? Well, Pauline Accuse argues that by the 1720s, historiography in England had become, quote, less overtly polemical. And this apparently was because various political dangers, such as the Jacobite threat, had receded by this point. And Cuse also claims that partisan historiography fell out of fashion in 18th century England because it was inconsistent with politeness, an unofficial code of conduct which commanded good manners and etiquette. And from what I've seen of what was uh, published during this period, which is only a small sample of, what, um, of the various histories, that were published, there was certainly quite a lot of posturing about the duties of a historian and the ways in which bias can be displayed through one selection of sources. Between 1749 and 1751, George Lavington, the Bishop of Exeter, published a three volume polemic entitled The Enthusiasm of Methodists and Papists Compared. And as the title suggests, Lavington spent the whole of this fairly tedious work highlighting every possible similarity between Roman Catholicism and Methodism. But when you look at Lavington's footnotes, you'll see that the overwhelming majority of the sources he cited were medieval hagiographies of various saints. So Lavington was clearly going out of his way to tell his readers that this work was a non-partisan piece of historical scholarship. Some 18th century church historians were less bothered about what sources they used. One individual whom I've done a bit of work on was a Cambridge clergyman called Zachary Gray, who was born in 1688 
and died in 1766. And Gray was a staunchly Tory high churchman who despised Protestant dissenters such as Presbyterians and Baptists. Like many high churchmen during this period, Gray believed that all dissenters had blood on their hands because their ancestors had murdered the most godly of kings, Charles I. And one of the ways in which Gray attacked dissenters was by arguing that they were all secret agents of the papacy. And Gray supported this ludicrous argument by citing alleged examples from the 16th and 17th centuries of Catholics masquerading as Puritans. And most of these alleged examples were taken from a 1680 work entitled Foxes and Firebrands. And Foxes and Firebrands was a highly dubious anti-Puritan history of the Reformation written by John Nelson, an Anglican Tory, and Robert Ware, a Church of Ireland layman. Another way in which I've come into contact with polemical historiography is through my interest in the decline and rise of Calvinism in the Church of Ireland. Between the Restoration and the emergence of evangelicalism during the late 18th century, there is a tunnel period in which Calvinism seems to disappear in the Church of Ireland. And some 18th century clergymen even went so far as to write Calvinism out of the Church of Ireland's history. And they did this by trying to make James Usher, uh, who served as Archbishop of Mar during the mid 17th century, they tried to portray him as being less Calvinist than he actually was. Some clergymen relayed the dubious story that on his deathbed in 1656, Usher had renounced his Calvinism. Others argue that Arminian interpretations of Usher's resolutely Calvinist 1615 articles were perfectly valid. Of course, when it comes to 18th century historiography, it is Edward Gibbon, author of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, who is often described as the most self-aware of historians. And Gibbon famously drew a fine line between the role of the theologian and the role of the historian. But there's evidence to suggest that even Gibbon wasn't as religiously detached as he may have liked to have thought. For instance, Gibbon made various disparaging remarks about miracles and superstition. And such remarks were just as characteristic of the Reformation as they were of the so-called Enlightenment. So what I've tried to show in these few minutes is that I think we should be cautious of describing the early modern period, particularly the 18th century, as a time of progress when it came to historical writing. Clearly, polemical history was not dead and buried by the end of this period. But of course, I've been talking exclusively about the writing of ecclesiastical history in England and Ireland. So what I'd be interested to hear from other people in this virtual room is, um, who are working on different topics and on different countries, different continents, is, is the use and abuse of history something that has featured in your research? And have you noticed any transitions in the ways in which history was written across the early modern period? Thank you. Thank you very, thank you very much, Simon. And again, I think another absolutely illuminating contribution. And I think what we've managed successfully to do is checking through our attendees with nobody from St. Andrews. So Graham, I think you're safe. Um, and 
we haven't had too much posturing about the duties of the historian, so we have moved on. So that is, I think, something worthwhile. Um, there are some questions coming in on the Q&A, so I'm going to move to those without further ado. Um, and the first questions that are coming here for Robert. Um, we have two questions that we might take together. Um, and we have a question here asking about, could you speak a little about the sources um, and could, how we could perhaps engage differently with these sources, the sources that we're familiar with to study the more, the more social history of religion, and likewise, um, more specifically about sources extant for Presbyterianism and how presbytery and consistory course questions, sources can be used to illuminate some of the sorts of questions that you're interested in. I wonder, can you speak to that? Uh, yes, um, I'll, I'll give it a go. Um, I think I'm back. We can hear me again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, one of the, the, the things that, that Irish historians constantly moan about um, is, is the dearth of sources. Oh, we don't have the kinds of sources um, historians of other parts of early modern Europe have. And to some extent that's true, uh, but, but a lot of it is just us moaning, I suppose. I mean, to think of the specifics first of, of Presbyterians, um, there, there is nothing like the same amount of material that one would have in some other uh, communities. So if you compare uh, Irish Presbyterians with, 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 with Scotland, for example, it's been obvious kind of comparison. Uh, there's a great mass of material at parish level or congregational level for the 17th century. Uh, for Ireland, very little at that level. So to the best of my knowledge, there's only uh, one set of, of, of parish level or congregational level records uh, for a Presbyterian community before the 1690s. But there are significantly more sources as one moves up the ladder. So for those of you who aren't familiar with, with Presbyterianism, um, it, it, it's, it's, there is a hierarchy within Presbyterianism, but it's not a hierarchy of individuals, it's a hierarchy of institutions. So, so the local congregation parish level is governed by a body called a session, it's a group of elders, uh, and they will keep minutes and records, though those, uh, say, in the Irish situation have not generally survived until the very end of the 17th century. Uh, but then there's, there's a series of layers above that. Uh, so a presbytery would be a regional level, um, a synod, which is the top level uh, in Ireland until the 1690s, would cover a much wider area. So a synod would cover, for example, Ulster. And then at the very end of the 17th century, you've got another layer on top of that, which would be a national level. Um, so, so you have a series of, of, of ascending hierarchies and records do survive at presbytery level uh, from, from the middle of the 17th century. And, and to sort of blend that into the other uh, question, these can be tapped in, in terms of exploring the social dimension of religion, because what uh, presbytery records will show um, will, will, be, will be issues that have been bounced up from local level. And they may be particularly uh, tough cases to do with moral discipline. Um, so cases of, of fornication, we think, um, probably occur quite a lot, but you can deal with that locally. Adultery is a much more serious matter, so that tends to get bounced up uh, at the presbytery level. Uh, but we're not just talking about regulation of, of um, uh, moral misbehavior, if we call it that, as it, as it would be understood. Um, and, and 
I should maybe by the way say that that's not a question of just regulation by, by, by clergy or by elders, but, but there's a whole community dimension to that. Uh, but they also look at questions like the formation uh, of clergy. It's a very intense process of, of clerical training going on uh, by means of presbyteries. There are issues around financing. Remember, this is a voluntary church. Uh, there's no coercive mechanism. So how do you sustain uh, a system? How do you pay clergy? How do you build meeting houses? How do you acquire property? So all these kinds of social aspects can be tapped into uh, through presbytery level records. And as you go deeper into the 17th century and, and particularly into the 18th, you see more of this emerging. Um, and, and, and a whole series of other layers are created of sub-synods and synods and so on. Um, other sources, yeah, there's, there's not much that goes into print. There's really an absence of print uh, right up until the 1690s, apart from a couple of short texts in, in the late 1640s. But sermons sometimes survive, and sermons not just uh, uh, as written out by the preacher, but sometimes as written out by an auditor, so someone who's listening to sermons and writing them down. And again, you can tap this not just for ideas, but for the way ideas connect to, to, to lived experience. Uh, what kind of examples are being used, what even kinds of metaphors are being used, as well as the, the explicit theology that's being mediated uh, uh, to, uh, to, to an auditory. Is that Am I missing anything? Um, or is that I think where that the questions probably, were going? That Sorry. probably covers most of what we have okay. there. I think um, I think the listening point also connects very neatly into I think some of Graham's research, and I think there must be parallels there in terms of the sort of listening to the word of God and provincial ulcer and likewise questions of literacy and so forth. A question for Simon um, from Liam O'Rourke. Um, so thank you, Simon, for an excellent discussion. In terms of the general decline, removal of Calvinism from the Church of Ireland, would it be possible to assess how this came about? And if so, was it wholesale among the general population who subscribed to the C of I, or is it one, one aspect being the approach to the Eucharist? Why do most parts of Munster and Connacht retrain, retain the three-year communion whilst in towns and cities across the kingdom? It was monthly or in parts of early 18th century Dublin on a weekly basis. Well, thank you. Uh, I've read that. I, I was able to, one of the advantages of this system means that I was able to read that highly stimulating question in advance. Um, I'm afraid the latter point about the Eucharist isn't something I know anything about, although it's a fascinating point. As regards the extent to which this decline of Calvinism, how widespread it was, that is a question I'm trying to answer. The problem we have, and it's not something that's exclusive to Ireland, is it's not always easy to gauge what the lay voice was in these matters. Certainly the consensus I found is that by the early 18th century, very few Church of Ireland clergymen are preaching Calvinist doctrines. The extent to which this is favoured by the people sitting in the pews is another point. Um, I have found one example of a, um, a former French Huguenot minister who's uh, a minister, a Church of Ireland minister in Sligo during the early 18th century, who um, is preaching Calvinist doctrines and uh, presumably with the approval of his congregation. And there are certainly instances of uh, 
members of the laity being poached by Presbyterians who were presumably because they favor a more Calvinistic message. So um, I'm afraid this is a fairly weak answer, but the extent to which it's what these clergy are saying, to the extent to which it's replicated in what the laity think, that's something I'm still trying to answer. But the, to come back to Robert's point, the lack of sources, especially the lack of lay sources means it's difficult. But certainly I think that it's safe to say that amongst the laity, there is still some enthusiasm for Calvinist doctrines, the traditional Calvinist doctrines, which are associated with the days of Usher. Thank you, Simon. And again, I think um, very comprehensive answer. Um, just picking up then, um, if anybody else has further questions, please do submit them to Q&A tab. Graham, if I may, I'm just curious, taking these two sort of discrete we articles, as you call them, is, there, is this part of a wider sort of investigation? Are you going to try and connect with these different case studies or is this, are you, are you, is this something discrete? Because there's obvious connections going on here. No, the, the grand narrative on rural religion in early modern Europe will, will be a while coming, I think, uh, Patrick. I suppose I'll just try and add something um, on sources. Maybe that would be would be helpful because, you know, there is always a question about a paucity of sources and therefore the limited range of questions that can be asked. But I think historians also have to be conscious of the opposite problem, early modernists included, and that is when your source base almost is of a sufficient size that allows you to hide behind it and avoid sort of tough questions that arise from the information you have. So for example, I presume Robert, that you would kill to have complete and entire baptismal and marriage records for a community in 16th or 17th century Ireland. And in every Genevan parish, such things exist. And so you can, you know, how long people waited after their first partner died before they got remarried, you know, um, how long, whether or not they waited to begin, as it were, marital relations with their partner into the marriage, you know whether their engagement marked the beginning of, of uh, physical relations rather than the, the marriage, you know who they got, you know the age of them, you know a lot of information about, as it were, the observable social behaviors and choices that they made. But the problem can be that one, you spend so much time reconstructing this and it's not altogether easy, but having done so, it can slightly sit there as a blob of information and it almost defies then and you slightly forget what it was that you were trying to do when you started uh, reading through all this stuff. So for example, Patrick, the fact that I discovered that over time, the rates of extramarital pregnancies go down in Geneva society. Brand, but, but what, what does that mean? <laughs> does it mean that the government became more effective at policing communities? Does it demonstrate that people were internalizing the values and identity of their religion and that was being exhibited in their moral choices in their daily lives? Does it mean that people just grew more creative about evading uh, the government in different ways? I suspect it means all of the above and many more. So, uh, you know, for all the difficulties I completely accept about dealing with the history of religion in societies where there are limited voices of ordinary people available, 
I just draw out the warning from the other side of the fence that sometimes the, the plethora of sources available can slightly crowd out. And I don't think it actually changes the parameters of the discussion. It still requires the historian's framing of an analysis of asking questions that are, are as it were, real questions, which are appropriate and can be answered by material. I think that's probably a very important warning. And certainly I think there is the danger of sort of superabundance allowing for you to create these questions, these answers, but then you find find the questions the other way around. Um, I don't know, do, do any of our panelists have questions for each other? Do either of you want to speak to Simon's question about the shift from to shift away from polemic? Actually, we have, we have another question while you're thinking um, here from the audience. Um, very interesting words, how people engaged with what they heard. Was there a sense that even those who were writing theology, etc., recognized the importance of listening to, that they prioritized being heard over having their writings read, and also that they were concerned about what people were saying to one another? That might be directed towards you, Graham, but I think could be broadly addressed. Yeah, I mean, there's some um, lovely little studies of this kind of thing. Uh, Robert and Simon will be able to help me, but they sort of work, for example, on um, groaning in congregations. And so this was the practice of the particularly devout and the pious, the kind of people who sit at the front of a lecture room or the, or the front of a virtual um, uh, room. And as you know, the preacher made a particularly powerful point, the pious would be sure to, you know, demonstrate somehow their agreement and their assent to the moral force of what he'd said by sort of making some noise of some kind. It's often described as groaning of various kinds in the sources, either of lament or of an agreement or something like that. So we get little fragments of evidence, either sometimes from preachers' accounts of the response to their own preaching or various other sorts of church sources of these moments where you see, as it were, some people wanting to advertise to those around them their own sense of religiosity and piety in those public spaces. And it's not that common, it's not everywhere followed, but you do sometimes get that. But a lot of times, you know, you don't. That's the central problem, I think, that many of us are, are, are the voiceless, unknown person, who, <laughs> which is the vast majority, who comes into a church, sits down, doesn't cause any trouble, doesn't fall asleep, doesn't shout anything, doesn't do anything, and leaves. And the question that many of us are sort of worried about and have been worried about for a long time is what on earth is inside their heads? Yeah, I mean, just just to throw in another thought on that on that topic, um, the other thing that that that, that occurs in, in in printed sermons, um, I think. I mean, my colleagues can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think this is even more true in the early rather than the later 17th century, is there's almost an apology for printing a sermon. So the, you know, you'll find the, the author saying that this was delivered in such and such a, a setting and, and they've been lent upon to, to put it in print so that it can be available to other people who weren't there. But that there, there is an apologetic element and there's a sense too of sometimes even outrightly saying it that, you know, the that the, the spoken sermon was alive, and that this is this is this is a dead sermon, um, but it you know, may still have some value. That to be there at the time was was the real experience, uh, and this is this is very much second rate. 
Um, whether that or when that begins to change, I'm not sure, but but I certainly that would be that would be the, the message being proclaimed. And again, that may be to some extent a, a kind of a trope. It's what one is expected to say as, as we print our sermons. And at some point that might begin to be true. But I, I suspect certainly early in the 17th century and, and back into the 16th, it's very much it's very much the, the belief of, of, of the person putting it into print that, 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 that the spoken example is the real thing. Um, and this is, this is just a, a, you know, a record of something that, that, that occurred. But it would be lovely to know how people heard things. I mean, we, alas, just, just, just often can't. Um, and, and even written down sermons, it, it would be lovely. And I think occasionally, not, not in Ireland, but I think occasionally English historians have been able to do this, to compare the version uh, that the preacher records with the notes that a listener has taken um, and you know to contrast what the preacher thought he'd said with what someone thought they had heard which is which can be very illuminating. I think that's an interesting question and it's um, one individual that it's brought to my mind was a London Church of England clergyman called John Henley and he was nicknamed Orator John Henley and he actually during the early decades of the 18th century, he published books on oratory as a, as a discipline. And he claimed to be tapping into a market which was largely untouched among the clergy. And one of his main arguments was that Oxford and Cambridge, which of course was the training grounds for the Church of England clergy, did absolutely nothing to train clergymen for the skills of actually delivering a sermon and delivering it well. Now, I don't know if there's any continental parallels that you might have found, Graham, but that was certainly a criticism that was made during the 18th century, that these institutions don't do a very good job of training preachers how to actually preach and keep the laity from not, keep them awake, so to speak. You. We've now, I think we've moved on there. We've another question here for Simon. Um, he's um, very interested here about what you described as neo-Laudians attacking Burnett um, for his criticism with the pre-Reformation Church. Did they come under a polemical attack themselves, being crypto-Catholics, especially after 1688, or did they escape polemical attack, especially in the 1680s, in an atmosphere where radical Protestantism was more distrusted than Catholicism? That's a, that's a very good question. Um, I suppose if we're talking about the period after 1688, the, the Glorious Revolution, um, a lot of the people who we describe as neo-Laudians, not all of them, but most of them become non-jurors, people who refuse to swear the oath of allegiance to William and Mary. And in short, yes, they are accused of being crypto-Catholics. First of all, for the simple reason that they are saying that the person who should rightfully be on the throne is a Catholic, James II, but also later on, even long after James II's death, um, this, these non-jurists, these people who are part of this Laudian tradition, they're accused of crypto-Catholicism for their theology because some of them feel that Archbishop Cranmer's 1549 prayer book should be restored. And um, in that prayer book, there is the, um, it calls, it prescribes as practice of praying for the dead which of course many associated with the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. Now, when they were accused of being crypto-Catholics because of this, non-jurors replied, 
we're not praying for the souls of the damned, we're praying for the faithful departed who are in a middle state. We're not supporting the doctrine of purgatory, but certainly, yes, the non-jurors who, after 1688, are the people who follow on from this neo-Laudian tradition, they are accused of being crypto-Catholic. I mean, I think the thing we have to remember about the 18th century is that anti-Catholicism often consists of Protestants accusing each other of being crypto-Catholics. So you see um, dissenters accusing high church Anglicans of being crypto-Catholics uh, for various reasons because of their alleged, uh, because they are allegedly venerating the early church fathers too much and not paying enough attention to the scripture. Dissenters on the other hand are accused of being crypto-Catholics because they are schismatics who are eroding the powers of the Church of England. So it is very much a polemical slur that's thrown around by Protestants at each other. But in short, yes, they are accused of crypto-Catholicism um, after the revolution. Do we have any, any, any further questions coming in? Anybody else with a burning question they wish to ask our panel? Um, sort of strange situation where you don't have hands being raised and you can't spot. Um, I suppose with other, without any further questions, we may just finish up there. Um, unless any of our panel have anything, any final words they wish to add. Otherwise, I think we shall thank our panel panelists, I would say in the usual manner, but we can't quite do that. And just to advertise that our next seminar will be in two weeks time and we'll have another panel and this time featuring four of the four of our doctoral candidates here in early modern history at Trinity. And we hope to do another session, another similar session in the second term. So in this next week, we're going to feature Casper Kopp, Joel Herman, James Greeny and Grace Hoffman um all talk introducing a variety and quite a varied um, number, number of topics and i think will give us an insight into the latest research that they are doing in early modern history here at trinity so we shall see you again at the same time in the same place um in two weeks time otherwise it remains just to thank our speakers and sadly not to retire onwards to the duke as with the usual fashion and um, thank you again to simon to robert and to graham for kicking off this year's term, which really splendid, I think, papers and insights into ongoing issues in early modern history. So thank you all. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the community created by Carl The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.